This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Leah Richards, a reference to the band that saved my life. And I'm Will Davis. No regrets. My many things this week, as well as being a bad tattoo, I'm also quite ill, so that will explain my husky voice and occasional sniffling. But besides all of that, we have some fun science for you this week, starting off with a couple of tattoo-based stories, and if anyone's ever seen me in real life, you know that I have a couple of tattoos. I aim to have a couple of more by the end of this year. But would that actually be a safe health choice? Tattoos do have a historically unsavory opinion, according to some historians. There's all kinds of diseases that can be transferred with unclean equipment. They weren't thinking about that when they invented MRI machines. They probably weren't thinking about MRI machines when they invented tattoos. Two opposite ends of human society and culture have come together in a very interesting way with modern medicine, and it poses the question, if I put a person with tattoos inside of my machine, will they explode? Might not be immediately obvious why that seems to be a risk, but various tattoo inks contain things like metal salts, which a magnetic resonance imaging machine might, you know, do stuff to? If you're not allowed into the machine room with even, you know, coins in your pocket in case they rip out your trousers and try and assassinate the person inside of the machine with their tiny copper fury, then there's understandable concerns. How much metal in your skin is allowed inside of the machine? This was the question posed by Nicholas Weisskopf, director of the Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences in Leipzig. Of course, when he started on the work back in 2011, he was still at the Wellcome Center for Human Neuroimaging, so he's had a couple of years and a couple of institutes worth of research to pile in. So far, it seems like everything's going okay-ish. They checked various colours of tattoos. Out of the 330 study participants, 932 tattoos, the majority of the ink used was black, which is pretty consistent across tattooing in general. Most things have black outlines. If they don't, they tend to get a bit lost. Though there were the limits of only being so big of a tattoo, only having so many of the tattoos on one person inside the machine, because having a non-zero explosion risk is an understandable ethical concern. I don't think I'd be happy if any part of my skin started exploding. Well, the good news is, it probably won't. The findings from this are that, in Weisskopf's own words, we found the majority of participants did not notice any side effects with tattoos. There was one specific case where the study doctor found the side effects, a tingling sensation on the skin, were related to an MRI scan. However, this unpleasant feeling disappeared within 24 hours, without the affected person having to require additional medical treatment. Fun black tattoo ink fact, most black tattoo ink involves bone char at some point. So... If you are a vegan considering a tattoo, double check if the place that you're going to is using vegan tattoo ink. I remember when one of my school friends went vegan, and when we were at sixth form, going through a big, like a vegan Bible of all the things you could and could not have, and stuff that routinely contained animal byproducts were things like vitamin supplements, which are often coated in shellac, which is a tree sap, but the processing involves catching tiny insects, and red Smarties. Band. Made with Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice? Juice from Beetles. I was hoping you were going to say Beetlejuice a third time. Now I make this podcast very interesting. Well, you just said it and nothing's happened. I think because we're not dead. <sighs> I'll save that for the Halloween episode. Lots of beer and cider filtered through fish guts. 
and I guess now tattoo inks are probably on that list as well, you'd hope. But at least they won't explode in the hospital. If you are a tattoo-having person in need of an MRI, then you can feel safe in your own skin. You probably won't catch fire. Not because of the MRI, anyway. But I did mention earlier that tattoos and MRIs are kind of different ends of human society and human experience, one being very old, one being very new. Just how old is tattooing anyway? We actually went to an exhibit at the M-Shed Museum in Bristol all about the history of tattooing. It was very informative, very well illustrated. We still don't know exactly when people started punching pictures into their skin. We know it's very, very old. If you've read about bog bodies or Otzi the Ice Mummy, you know tattooing has been a thing for a very long time. Apparently we've even had tattooed monarchs. Which, who saw that coming? Do you think maybe Queen Elizabeth has like an army tat? Never say die. I would bet money on Prince Philip having a navy tattoo somewhere. They should get those out more. We all know the rumours about Prince Albert. To keep our non-explicit tag on iTunes, we're going to leave this conversation here, but the history of tattooing can be extended a little bit further. At least the history of tattooing in North America can be extended back a little bit further, as a tool which has been sitting in storage for more than 40 years has been identified as a 2,000-year-old cactus spine tattoo tool. This is, you know, a cool story that we've managed to understand a bit more about human history in North America by an extra thousand years, which can inform a lot about our understanding of native communities and, like, human history as a whole, but also that it was just in a box, in a library shelf for, like, 40 years until a PhD candidate chanced across it was like, I know what that is. As is often the case, we don't always know what we've got when we pick it up, and then someone takes another look at it and goes, I know what this weird spiky thing is. I'm kind of surprised that this 2,000-year-old tool is the oldest evidence we have of tattooing in that region of North America, because there's some traditions in the region of mummifying people. In you know Mexico, Arizona, California, there's some fairly good climate conditions for mummifying people by accident. I'm surprised that we haven't found any remains with tattoos, to be honest. Well, history does have a bit of a blind spot when it comes to indigenous communities and their history, especially anything that's not been written down. So if it's being just communicated through a verbal history in a population which has not had the proper input and participation in communication of their history with a modern anthropological being, context... Which has been being actively ignored in many cases. But if we ever get to talk to Andrew Gilreath brown PhD candidate at Washington State University, we can ask him about that. And also ask him about his tattoos, because... They mentioned inside this press release that he managed to identify this tattoo tool on site, possibly because he himself has experienced tattoos with, quote, a large sleeve tattoo of turtle shell rattle, mastodon, water, and forest on his left arm. Now I will point out that the actual reason he recognised it is he'd been working with a similar tool from about a thousand years later than this one. I'm assuming if he's got a full sleeve tattoo that it was done with a machine, because otherwise, can you imagine how long that would have taken? Most of his PhD, probably. Sat there, trying to do research while someone's holding on to your left arm and just going... I didn't mean, like, during the PhD all hours of all the day. I mean, like, evenings and weekends, but sure. No, they didn't just look at this thing and go, ah, yes, this is clearly a tattoo tool. But Gilreath Brown and co-author and friend Aaron Dieter Wolf 
analyzed the TRIPS with a scanning electron microscope, some X-ray fluorescence, and energy dispersive ray spectroscopy. For good measure, he even did some test tattoos on pigskin with a replica. And wouldn't you know, it all indicates that the crystalline structure of pigment on this sharp, pokey thing is highly indicative of being used as a sharp, pokey thing to introduce pigment to skin. I want to see what the test tattoos look like. I'm really disappointed that there aren't pictures of them on the press release. Although we do have a picture of the tool if you want to make one at home and tattoo some pigskin, I guess? It does look very traditionally like the kind of thing you would bandage together with some rubber bands and a safety pin and a pot of India ink from your mum's calligraphy set. I don't think human tradition has really changed that much when it comes to improv tattooing. Luckily, it has changed somewhat when it comes to bloodborne disease control. But moving on, away from the soft, squishy science of skin, onto the also quite soft and squishy science of millipedes, and specifically millipede genitalia. I'm going to be saying that phrase a lot over the next couple of minutes, so if you don't like the ideas of millipedes or their genitals, then you might want to peace out for like the next five minutes or so. And again, in this story, we're looking at science done by imaging techniques to see what you can't normally see with the naked eye, and differentiating between two different species of millipede by seeing which parts of their junk fluoresce. The opening paragraph of this press release puts it pretty concisely, and I'll give them some plaudits for that. Sometimes it's really easy for scientists to tell species of animals apart. There'll be obviously different shapes or colours. Other times, different species will look nearly identical to the naked eye. In those cases, scientists need to turn to techniques like DNA analysis to tell them apart. Or... Like researchers at the Field Museum discovered when studying some near-identical millipedes, you can sometimes just shine a black light on them, and under the ultraviolet light, parts of the different species' genitals will glow different colours. They're looking at species from the genus Pseudopolydesmus, possessed of around 70 legs per animal. Another great quote from this press release. They're not very flashy-looking, about half an inch long, their exoskeletons are brown, their genitals, though, are a little more special. Pseudopolydesmus caddo and Pseudopolydesmus minor, almost indistinguishable, until you shine a black light on their junk. Turns out the entire genital array that a millipede has is a quite organised system about what goes where between the different systems of legs. They have an opening behind their second pair of legs, which is where the sperm comes out of the male and enters the female, but the gonopods are around the seventh pair of legs and there's a whole transfer system about getting your gametes up and down your body and then into another millipede's body and that is where the fluorescence can occur and let's not bury the fact that part of the genitals of a millipede are organs called gonopods which i think is a wonderful name you can play that in scrabble next time i've got all of these o's what will i do gonopods it's nearly as good a word as vulva. Which is also in this press release, talking about the female millipedes. Wonderful. Mm. Petra Searwald, an associate curator at the Field Museum and lead author of the paper describing the findings, says of the male millipede, We think he dips his gonopods into his ejaculate, which is kind of a bluish liquid, and then goes in search of a female walking around with his sperm on his gonopods. The male's gonopods have all these special features, little knobs and things. Some of them look like the bristles on a toothbrush. So think about that when you're brushing your teeth this evening, I suppose. And Seawold also comments, it's not clear why the millipedes have evolved glowing genitalia. As far as we can tell, they can't see that they glow. What purpose does this serve, then? Possibly none. It might just be 
a byproduct of the cuticle on the gonopod. They'd have to go to some pretty surprising lengths to get these pictures because they've mostly got archival samples and you can't exactly go scanning those in all the detail you want without coating them in gold particles and putting them under some pretty intense scanning. So what they did instead was hook up a kind of pan-zoom camera that could focus in millimetre by millimetre and stack photographs together. So you got lots of different photos all compiled at different focal lengths under the black light so you could articulate each and every knob and spindle of this brushy gonopod thing that they've got going. Have a side-by-side image comparison even if you want to check this out for yourself. And this is the sort of thing which Colinaeus would be very proud of because he started classifying plants by looking at their sexy parts. And then on another buggy note, coming back to a story which we covered oh a good couple of dozen episodes ago now. We were looking at the use of drones to deliver blood samples and blood products to areas that needed them most, say in disaster scenarios or anywhere in need of emergency humanitarian relief. And whilst we did go on about blood drones at the time, they could be getting an upgrade thanks to research from Purdue School of Engineering Technology, who's adding an insectile twist to their arrangements. They haven't referenced specifically in this press release the use of these particular drones as blood drones, but by referencing the flexible limbs of insects, they think they've made a drone which can carry loads which are more off-centre by virtue of being able to adjust more easily than fixed-arm drones. Jumin Dao, assistant professor in Purdue School of Engineering Technology, says that Drones on the market now have fixed arms that greatly reduce their maximum payload capacity when the payload is offset from their centre of gravity. This new design allows for a larger payload, because the movable arms can liberate any part of rotor thrust to fight the weight of the overall device. They suggest the foldable arms can also help search and rescue operations, because those adjustable arms give them a little bit more flexibility to adjust to unsettled air conditions. And from an engineering and evolutionary perspective, it makes sense that rather than having a fixed body, one that can adapt and adjust in uncertain conditions is more likely to succeed in its mission. This is going to be especially useful if you're anyone who's contributed to the 700 million US dollars that's gone into the drone industry in 2018. Who saw that coming in like 2010 or so? What do you expect over the next 8 to 10 years is going to be the big thing? People are going to make smoking weirder by plugging batteries into it. People are going to be doing drones all over the shop. And the rise of the far right on a global level and nascent fascist states taking over previously held bastions of democracy. And we've still got people starving to death and no flying cars. The future kind of sucks. Like, it's not full dystopia, but we could be doing better. We should be doing better. But who can really predict the future anyway? turns out that even when it comes to predicting the weather, we're doing all right, but the most we can do is, like, five-day forecast. Now, the thing about predicting the weather is it's mathematically really, really complicated, to the point where we've just sort of gone, uh, chaos. And at Penn State University, they've been doing some work on how well we can possibly do on that, and the maths reckons two weeks. That's it. That's the maximum limit of weather forecasting. Accurate weather forecasting. Well, yeah, you can definitely like turn to augury and something if you want to find out what it's going to be like in mid-June. I mean, you can say, more than two weeks out, it's probably cooler than now, but 
you've got to be ready for the situation to just turn because a butterfly did a thing that's my understanding of quantum as well a butterfly does a thing and then it's all gone sideways only in quantum's case obviously the butterfly is like a subatomic particle of some sort don't know what flavor i'll leave the heavy thinking to fuching zhang who is a distinguished professor of meteorology and atmospheric science and director of the center for advanced data assimilation and predictability techniques at penn state who says the obvious question that has been raised from the very beginning of our whole field what is the ultimate limit at which we can predict day-to-day -day weather in the future? We believe we have found that limit, and, on average, it's about two weeks. And yeah, they get into the whole Lorenzian mathematics chaos theory. I think it's probably best pinned to Jurassic Park, if anyone at home is uncertain about their chaos theory in mathematics. Just imagine a shirtless Jeff Goldblum, and it's all gonna go a lot easier. There's a lot of people out there in the world who find shirtless Jeff Goldblum makes a lot of things easier. Zhang said, we used state-of-the-art models to answer this fundamental question, and I think in the future we'll be able to refine this answer, but our study demonstrates conclusively that there is a limit to predictability, though we still have considerable room to improve forecasts before reaching that limit. There are historical models that you can try and pull from and expect what things are going to be like in the near future, but seeing as people have made a tendency to not learn from history anyway, I wouldn't sweat too much about it. And as always, the most reliable way of finding out what the weather is doing is looking at it directly in the eye. Like, don't look at the sun, though. If no. That's, if that's what you mean. That's, if that's the source of the weather, do not look at that. If you want to find out if it's sunny, staring at the sun. I mean, by the, by the nature of uh, physics and cosmology and stuff, the sun is the source of all the weather. But yeah, don't look directly at it. Because the heat from the sun drives all the weather systems. I thought you were going to say it's going to dry your eyes out. No. The heat from the sun will bake you. I mean, it will if you stay out in it long enough. If you look at the sun, the heat of it will make your eyeballs catch on fire. The brightness of it will do damage to the internal structures of your eyeball. But also, the heat of it drives the weather. So we've got tattoos, we've got millipedes, we've got drones, we've got weather. That's humanity in 2019. Lots of people have tattoos. A lot of people have drones. The weather is happening, and insects are in trouble. But also are trouble. You're right, this is a bad future. If you'd like to talk about building a better future, then let us know. Find us on Twitter, at EurekaNerdCast, or via email, EurekaNerdCast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdCast at gmail.com. And if you love the show, you want to help support us, offset the costs of hosting and producing all this lovely, lovely content for you, you can donate to our Kofi. If you want to know more about the environment and saving the world, then check out some of the other Stimulus Network podcasts, such as For What It's Earth, who have been on a real eco-binge. That's actually just their entire show is about the environment and saving the world, so... They've specifically been talking about dealing with plastics. Mm, we've got an episode about that as well. If you're enjoying more Fi in your side, then we've also got The Cosmic Shed, who look at the science behind the movies, and The Spooktator, who are at the edge of what might be real. But for two quick stories, just to tide you over until our next episode, remember back in our Quit Smoking episode, we talked about how the Munchies has been systematically reviewed? And how sales of cookies increase and stay increased after marijuana is legalised in an area? Marijuana users have been found to do way less defying the Munchies, according to Michigan State University. Probably don't take up smoking weed as a weight loss tool, though. 
that is actually one of the cautions from this press release. It is not a suitable dietary supplement. On the other hand, with all of our talk about predictions, maybe we should just leave it to the University of Nottingham, who have found that artificial intelligence can predict premature death. If you're of a suspicious frame of mind, you might think back to Professor Stephen Hawking's concerns about AI destroying us all, or you could look on the bright side and just blame it on big data. Or indeed, if it's the machine of death and tells you exactly how you die, causing you to try and avoid it, causing you to then die in exactly that way, in a Greek tragedy kind of way. As long as their predictions of death aren't uniformly for everyone who asks, when will I die? 2024. You will die in 2024. You will all die in 2024. But until next time, that's bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network. But at least they won't explode in the hospital. Beef in your skin. Exploding beef. Beef in your skin.